I know we just got started in First Timothy, but sometimes shepherding necessitates an interruption. If we never finish First Timothy, when you get to heaven, just ask Paul or Timothy. They'll tell you all about it. Be more than happy to tell you the story. The, the famous line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, to be or not to be, that was the inspiration for our thoughts this morning, to sing or not to sing. And so I want to have you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and while you're finding that text, we'll get you caught up on what's happening in the latest news. On July 1st, this past week, Governor Gavin Newsom of California issued an updated document called COVID-19 Industry Guidance, Places of Worship and Providers of Religious Services and Cultural Ceremonies. Very catchy title, I thought. On page 13, Newsom gives the heading, Considerations for Places of Worship. And in one of the bullet points, he states, quote, Discontinue singing in rehearsals, services, etc., chanting, we don't do chanting, so we're good there, and other practices and performances where there is increased likelihood for transmission from contaminated, exhaled droplets. I said to the first service, I've never used the word droplets in a sermon before. This is a first. He goes on, consider practicing these activities through alternative methods such as internet streaming that ensure individual congregation members perform these activities separately in their own homes. Unquote. Now, while most would agree that the governor's attempts to keep the population safe during the 13 weeks or so that churches were shut down completely, that we agree that those were primarily to prevent the unmitigated spread of COVID-19, now that churches, at least those able to serve 100 or less in multiple services, but now that those churches are, are opened with the health protocols we have, the question now becomes really crossing into new territory Can the governor mandate the types of worship activities which takes place in these worship services? Does the command of the governor in this instance still warrant the full obedience of Christians under the broad umbrella of Romans 13.1 let every person be subject to governing authorities? I preached a sermon on Mother's Day this year called The Christian's Mandate, How to Respond When Government Disappoints. And the basic position I took from both 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 2 is that the government will often disappoint you as a Christian, but the mandate is clear. We obey. But I also clearly stated that obeying the government becomes impossible if the government issues an order which violates a clear command of Scripture or orders something that the Bible defines as sinful. So, for example, to the recent order to wear masks in public places feels like an inconvenience, but primarily and for the most part, it's not an inherently sinful activity that the government has mandated, so we can go along with it. But what about singing? Is it reasonable for the governor to prohibit singing under the guise of public health concerns? Or is the idea of health concern merely a really, really clever way to prohibit the public proclamation of the truth of God in song, which is one of the major purposes of singing. The government has sanctioned church gatherings once again. We respect the God-given right of the government to impose these temporary regulations for general health reasons to, to gatherings of substantial sizes of any type, whether it's theaters, concerts, 
church gatherings, anything of that type. But now the mandate is crossed over into new territory. It's crossed over into dictating what we may and may not do concerning the very core basics of Christian worship. Now they've crossed over into commanding that we not do something that is clearly a vital element of worship. Two most important words you'll hear is for today. For today, the elders have chosen to be patient in the spirit of 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, which commands us to pray for our governing authorities, quote, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So for today, we are not singing. The Greek word for that is lame. What that really means is that like our live stream service, live stream service is an oxymoron. It's really incomplete, isn't it? That what we're doing today is incomplete. It is an inadequate picture of true Christian worship. I'm going to give you my main point up front and then give you evidence from Scripture. It's a long one. I'll repeat it for you. But it really comes down to one basic element. Here's my main point. Singing in the corporate gathering of God's people is not an optional element of worship. Singing in the corporate gathering of God's people is not an optional element of worship. There's more to it. But is a core element and a commanded element. But is a core element and a commanded element. All at once, singing in the corporate gathering of God's people is not an optional element of worship, but is a core element and a commanded element. And all I'm going to do this morning is I want to just treat this like a, a courtroom case, and I want to give you some lines of reasoning. And we'll just use courtroom language that you're familiar with to keep us focused. Exhibit A. Exhibit A, that singing is not optional. Exhibit A is, singing is connected to being filled with the Spirit. Singing is connected to being filled with the Spirit. It's not the sole definition of being filled with the Spirit, but it's vitally connected. And we find this very familiar text to us, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18, if you'd like to follow along. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So it starts off with a negative imperative, a negative command to not get drunk with wine. This isn't addressing a drinking problem in the church. What this is addressing is the former worship practices of those pagans who had now become Christians. That in their, in their pagan ecstatic worship practices, one of the things that was done was to use alcoholic beverages or drugs or, or, or other means to create some sort of heightened supposedly state of awareness, some sort of heightened spiritual ecstatic experience. Basically, it was just a big drunken brawl is what it really was. And so what Paul is saying is that's not you anymore. You don't need to be filled with wine to experience something Instead, we're not going for an experience. We have a relationship. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. This is new worship. This is true worship of the one true living God. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I I don't have time for an extended discussion, but basically to boil this down, to be filled with the Spirit means to submit yourself to the control of the Holy Spirit. 
You submit yourself to the control of the Holy Spirit. In fact, grammatically here, but be filled with the Spirit is the idea of continuing to be filled. We could translate this, keep being filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-time thing. It's not something that you mark off and say, I've been filled with the Spirit and that's done. This is different than the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit of God happens at salvation. Romans 8, verse 9. This is different than the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit happens at salvation. And that's simply the spiritual reality that that you've now been placed, immersed into the body of Christ, into the church. Immersed in Christ with His people. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Being filled with the Spirit is different than the sealing of the Holy Spirit in which He's guaranteed the security of your salvation in Christ, that every Christian is a Christian forever. Now, what's different about being filled? There's no command in the New Testament to be indwelt, no command to be baptized, no command to be sealed by the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who who initiates and does those things. The only command in the New Testament we have concerning the Holy Spirit is to be filled or keep being filled. Now, there is the command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why is that command there? Because you disobeyed the command to be filled with the Spirit. So they're really the same thing. Keep submitting yourself to the control of the Spirit. Keep submitting yourself to the command of the Spirit. And what happens when that's happening? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happens. And so obviously the command to be filled with the Spirit is applicable to all parts of life. But here in Ephesians 5, there is a particular emphasis. There is a particular focus. There is a particular direction That is that being filled with the Spirit is followed by expected results. And these results are expressed in three adverbial participles. You don't have to say it, write it down, or even spell it. I can't say it or spell it. But an adverbial participle is basically words that continue in action and modify the main verb of be filled. And so something is supposed to happen. You are filled with the Spirit. What's the result? Three adverbial participles. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Given the fact that these are adverbs, meaning they're describing the actions that go along with the clear command to be filled with the Spirit, these are connected. So what do these mean? Addressing. It means to say something. It means to speak something. It's verbal. It's out loud. Singing. It means exactly what it says. There's no hidden meaning there. And you should know this, that the music itself isn't the focus. They are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does that mean? It means that the words are are paramount. And making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, I want to be very clear here. Making melody is just another word for singing. This is not a silent activity. Making melody to the Lord with your heart does not mean, oh, that means I can keep my mouth closed and make melody in my heart. Yes, you can do that. That's not what this is saying. This is saying, when I sing out loud, it is done with my full heart and soul. It's an external result. Now, the question might be asked, well, can't we just sing at home? Can't we just sing at home? And that, that possibility was discussed this week. 
Yes, that's true. But singing is part of the result of being filled with the Spirit and the mandated part of public worship. In other words, if we are going to meet, and if we're going to obey Scripture, we must sing. Paul says we're addressing one another. The singing is not just to God, it's to each other. It's an encouragement, it's a show of solidarity and loyalty to Christ. It's a show of love to each other. We love one another when we sing. Sometimes here at Grace, when we sing, we'll have you face one another for this very reason. And so singing is connected to being filled with the Spirit. They, they, they go together. Let me give you Exhibit B. It's very similar, but I want to make sure we cover this base carefully. Exhibit B, singing is connected to an obedient life. Singing is connected to an obedient life. Turn with me just a couple of pages away to Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16, singing is connected to an obedient life. Now, just a quick little history. You know when you write thank you notes and they're going to multiple people and you realize that they'll never see each other's thank you notes and all you have to do is change the name and the gift, right? Well, that's what Paul does with Galatians and Ephesians. Two different audiences and almost identical letters. They're very, very similar. Colossians is a, or I'm sorry, Colossians and Ephesians. Colossians is a somewhat shortened version of Ephesians. And so because of that, we have tons of great intertextual commentary that Colossians can comment on Ephesians and Ephesians can comment on Colossians. What is the parallel, do you think, to being filled with the Spirit? The parallel is Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This verse has one dominant verb. It's an imperative, a command. And when we could say it more accurately like this, let dwell. That's the main verb. Let dwell the word of Christ in you richly. That's the parallel to being filled with the Spirit. If you're letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, you're being filled with the Spirit. If you're being filled with the Spirit, it means you've let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then this dominant imperative verb is followed up by three, oh, here they are again, participle verbs, which explain how it is we're to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. First one, teaching. Teaching one another in all wisdom. We're to be about the business of what? Of learning the Word of God. Second, admonishing one another in all wisdom. We're to be about the business of not only learning the word of God, but of applying the word of God. That's what admonishing is about. And third, teaching, admonishing, singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're to be about the business of singing the word of God as expressed three ways. Psalms, that's verbatim scripture set to music. Hymns, these are songs which proclaim and rehearse the great deep doctrinal truths from Scripture. And spiritual songs, songs which encourage us to live spiritual, obedient lives before God. The last hymn that Darren just recited was a spiritual song in a hymnal taken from several psalms. So it gets all three. The three participles of teaching, admonishing, singing are part of the command the imperative to let dwell the word of Christ in you richly. 
It's part of obedience. Singing is part of your obedience. Let's do exhibit C. Exhibit C, we'll call this one, singing to the Lord is commanded repeatedly in Scripture. Singing to the Lord is commanded repeatedly in Scripture. In recent days, it has irritated me to no end to see the articles in the news about singing in the church. It it just makes me want to scream when I see people who have no idea what they're talking about trying to act like experts. And here's a common theme. Very well-meaning people are saying they describe singing as part of Christian tradition or part of Christian practice or a habit. That's true, but that's vanilla, that is weak. No, singing is a thousands of years old mandate from the Bible. It is a command. We've already seen commands in Ephesians and Colossians. Singing is mentioned well over 300 times in Scripture. And by the way, that does not count all the references to praise, worship, exalt, which also includes singing. That brings it up to several thousand mentions in the Bible. Let me just give you a few examples of commands to sing. And I'm going to tell you then, they all have one thing in common. These commands I'm going to read you. You might just note the references After the triumph at the Red Sea, Miriam, the sister of Moses, commanded the women of Israel in Exodus 15, verse 21. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I love the fact that she sang a command to sing. It's an imperative. It's a command. Psalm 9, verse 11, an imperative. Sing praises to the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 3, a command, sing to him a new song. Psalm 96, verse 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Command, command, command. King David in 1 Chronicles 16, beginning of verse 8, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Imperative, 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 imperative. Commands. Many, many more. And I said they all have one thing in common. You know what all of those commands have in common? These commands to sing are all in the context of singing with God's people gathered together. This is not a command to sing in the shower or sing in your car. This is a command to sing when you're gathered together. There are 32 references to singing praises to God in the New Testament. And every single one of them, 32 out of 32, are in the context of singing with God's people in the company of God's people together. Now, obviously, singing alone is certainly a useful part of your worship to God. But in the New Testament, that's not the emphasis. The 100% emphasis on singing in the New Testament is singing together. Speaking of which, Exhibit D, making our case that, that singing is... Not optional. Exhibit D, singing to the Lord is the yearning of the faithful. Singing to the Lord is the yearning of the faithful. Let me give you some of these. Psalm twenty-one, thirteen: be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Now, let me give you a little grammatical note here. You don't have to remember the words, but the concept is important. We will sing. This is a verb mode called a cohortative. And specifically in Hebrew, this is a, called a cohortative of resolve. And what does that mean? 
A cohortative of resolve says that the speaker or the writer is absolutely determined to do everything he can to make something happen. So you could say, we will sing with the best ability we can. We, can, we will sing with the most effort we can. We will put everything we have into singing and praising your power. Same verb type, Psalm 18, verse 49. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing, cohortative of resolve, your name. Same with Psalm 27, 6. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Same with Psalm 57, verse 9. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Many, many other examples of these cohortative of resolves that, that I'm resolved, I'm determined to do this. And what do all the ones I just gave you have in common? Take a wild guess. These determinations to sing are all in the context of singing with God's people. Singing together is the natural inclination of the regenerate. It's what you want to do. If somebody claims to be a Christian and they say to me, but I just don't ever really want to sing, then I would say then you might consider whether or not you're even saved. Because Christians want to sing and it has nothing to do with your singing ability. It has to do with your spiritual ability to connect to God because of the gospel. Singing together is our natural inclination of those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. Let me give you Exhibit E, and this one might surprise you. Exhibit E, that singing is not optional. Our singing to God is a reflection of Christ singing to you. Our singing to God is a reflection of Christ singing to you. That might surprise you. Zephaniah verse th- chapter 3 prophetically describes the return of God to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of Zephaniah 3 says, The King of Israel, the Lord, that is Christ, is in your midst. In your midst is not theoretical, it's not philosophical. It means you're here and he's next to you. He's in your midst. Two verses later, my favorite verse in the entire Old Testament, Zephaniah 3 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is a picture of Jesus Christ singing with exaltation, with jubilation, with celebration. Why? Because his work of redemption has been accomplished and you're together I know that we often picture being happy to be with Christ, but do you ever picture how happy Christ will be to be with you? Because you were a dear, dear saint because he bought you. He bought you. He redeemed you. Hebrews 2 verse 12 looks back at Psalm 22 as a messianic psalm. And the saying that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brothers, his sisters. Hebrews 2 verse 12, this is Jesus talking. He's talking to God his Father. And he says, I will tell, this is a future, something is going to happen in the future. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I, that is Christ, will sing your praise. Do you realize that there will be a day when you are standing with Jesus Christ, not only singing with him, but listening to him sing? 
Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God made man. And the God man joins his fellow humans in song. Let me put it this way. Singing praise to God is an eternal activity founded in the very person of God himself. Where do you think it came from? It came from him. Jesus will never restrain his singing to us. And may God help us to never restrain our singing to him. Exhibit F. We're going to Q. No, we won't do that. Exhibit F. Singing is part of the regulative principle of worship. Singing is part of the regulative principle of worship. Take the word regular, take off the R and put T-I-V-E at the end. Regulative. Singing is part of the regulative principle of worship. I need to give you a couple of definitions so you understand what we're talking about. Quick definitions. First of all, the normative principle of worship. The normative principle says that worship may consist of anything the Bible does not prohibit. Anything not prohibited in Scripture. So in other words, we could say next Sunday uh, we're going to have a divinely blessed parade of penguins coming down the aisle in praise and honor to God. That's not prohibited. There is no thou shalt not have a parade of penguins. Therefore, we can do it. Obviously, we don't hold to that. We hold to the regulative principle of worship which says that we do our best to define worship only as Scripture does. This is most often associated with the Reformed churches such as ours. Now, this, by the way, the regulative principle isn't for the purpose of creating overly legalistic rules and saying, hey, they didn't have lights or pulpits in the New Testament, so you can't have those either. Everything that seems like it's not in Scripture, if we're still abiding by the regulative principle pushes us toward those things and, and encourages us toward those things, contributes to the regulative principles. But that's not even the important part. More importantly, the significance of the regulative principle is that it doesn't just define what worship is according to Scripture. It mandates what worship is according to Scripture. And these are not optional. And it's a short list. Prayer, the reading of Scripture, the preaching of the word, the collection of offerings, the Lord's table, baptism, and singing. They're not just part of the list. They're mandated. Regardless of the rationale, regardless of the reason, the governor's order has attempted to impose itself on our very dearly held regulative principle. And if he does that, what's next? You can preach, just not on the topic of homosexuality or gender issues. You can pray, but you just can't do it out loud and maybe only three of you. You can read the Bible, but you just have to use gender-modified language when you do. At what point do we say no? No. Let me give you one more. Exhibit G. Exhibit G, we'll call this the example of Daniel. It would have been more creative to call this Exhibit D, but I wanted to put Daniel last. So, the example of Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, just to get you caught up from the last time you were in Daniel. Babylon is now under the control of the Persian Empire. Babylon is now just one of the provinces of the massive, largest empire in the history of the world. At that time, the Persian Empire. Darius is the king, really more accurately the governor of Babylon under the overall rule of the Persian Empire. And so we have the scene set up for us here. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Satrap is just a word that means protector of the kingdom. These are lower officials to rule the smaller portions of the Babylonian province. Verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel found favor and he's in line to basically become the prime minister under the king. But the other satraps were jealous And so they conspired to lay, well, we might call it a satrap trap. (laughs) All they had to do was find a flaw in Daniel's character. No problem. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. They're out of luck because he was faithful. I added the they're out of luck part. And no error or fault was found in him. So they couldn't go after him for legitimate reasons. So they had to become sneaky and go after him in a political way. And they began to conspire to use Daniel's faith against him. Chapter 6, verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they appealed to the lust and power, lust for power that Darius had. They stroked his ego and pretended to be his admirers. Verse 6, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement, by conspiracy to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance. And enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And he caved. His ego kicked in. And therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So what's Daniel going to do? Well, he knows the law has been passed. And he certainly knew it wasn't actually for religious reasons. This is for political reasons. So what did he do? He didn't do anything differently. He did nothing differently. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He prayed toward Jerusalem with the understanding that the center of worship of God was in Jerusalem. Not a magical formula of any kind. It was just a means of acknowledging. He knows that what God's plan is. It's a, it's a means of pointing himself attitudinally toward God and really also having hope that someday he might return back home. But I want to point something out. This is very important. Daniel was an exiled Jew. He'd been brought to Babylon many decades before as a young teenager. He missed his home. He longed for Israel to be reunited. But in the meantime, here's what I want to point out. Daniel was an outstanding citizen. Daniel 6 tells us that he was literally the most trusted man in all of the kingdom. The highest advisor to the king himself. He wasn't a rebel. He wasn't a protester. He wasn't a lawbreaker. 
But when a law was passed that made it illegal to have faith in and communicate in prayer with God, he didn't make a fuss. He didn't protest. Didn't get angry. He simply still prayed. Now, you know the rest of the story. The other satraps accused him before the king because the law was irrevocable. Daniel was cast into the pit of lions, much to the distress and angst of Darius, who liked Daniel a lot. And the Lord honored Daniel, kept him safe. Darius took him out of the lion's den. Chapter 6, verse 24 And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Don't you wish justice would happen that fast? We we dream of that. Somebody cuts you off in traffic and they get blown up right then. You know, you're like, no, that's not usual. This was God's justice. This was God's timing. This was God's work. And what was the result? What happened as a result? The result was that God was honored. God was glorified. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwelt in all the earth. This is a broad statement to mean that Darius wrote to all those in the Babylonian province, in all the earth, in Hebrew just means in all the land, all the dirt, literally. And what did he write? Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. God was glorified, but why did Daniel disobey that decree of the king? He disobeyed it because it was a prohibition of a fundamental part of faith, worshiping God in prayer, and the obvious implication is out loud prayer. So right now, two most important words you hear today. For today, the elders of Grace Bible Church are still being cautious, not because we're afraid of defying what could be construed as a deal-breaking order to not sing, there are no cowards on your elder board. But because it is in the context of trying to slow down the spread of coronavirus. So far, we're being told that this is a temporary measure. And thus, we exercise more patience and waiting on the Lord. But I'm going to tell you this. At some point, and that point may be sooner, it may be later, enough will be enough. If we believe that health concerns are no longer the main motivation or that health is just now the excuse and a very clever one at that. The very moment we believe that singing is prohibited for any reason other than health, we will sing and we will sing if necessary like Paul and Silas in our jail cells next to one another. Darren and I are already picking out which ones we want because we're reminded of the words of Christ himself when he was riding on the colt of a donkey toward Jerusalem just days before his arrest and crucifixion, Luke 19, beginning in verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so there will be a day 
It may be next week, I don't know, when we're done being silent. I want to close with three sets of thoughts. I don't want you to be fooled by the phrase, I want to close, because I'm not anywhere near being done. But I want to close with three sets of thoughts. First, some encouragements for you. Second, some reminders of why we sing. And then finally, I have some words for our governor. First of all, some encouragements for you. Just three, very briefly. You can endure. You can endure. God said in Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And the fact is, is that if he's given you that command to be strong, to take heart, to have courage, then you can do it. He'll give you the strength. A second encouragement, very practical. If this prohibition continues, we're going to look at organizing one or more outdoor singing events. And we're going to sing every hymn in the hymnal. I just committed Darren to about 17 hours of singing. But we're going to sing and sing and sing. If we have to do it in an orchard somewhere, sometimes we say we'll lift the roof. Well, we'll lift the leaves, whatever it is. One more encouragement. Singing will win. Singing will win. Believers in Christ will someday rule the world along with Christ and never again will a no-sing order be issued. I want to give you another set of thoughts, some reminders of why we sing. Reminders of why we sing. At the Steadfast Bible Conference this past year, ironically, about singing to the Lord, I gave you a list of 72 reasons we sing And I've been asked to give them again. So I'm going to give you 72 reasons. You don't have to write these down. We're going to email them to you, okay? Number one, to boast of God's triumph. To be glad for God's provision. To remind us to obey God. To celebrate learning God's word. To celebrate God's protection. To rejoice in God's favor. To proclaim God's salvation to the nations. To give formal thanks to God. To remember God's mighty deeds. To herald the coming judgment of God. To celebrate God's covenant faithfulness. To receive God's strength in battle. To accompany our offerings to God. To express glad hearts to God. To express humility before God to worship God with might and strength, to cry out to God in times of trouble, to sing to God's people, to proclaim profound joy in God, to boast of God's rescue of the helpless, to publicly repent of sin before God, to announce that God is the creator, to rejoice that God is our refuge, to exalt in God's righteousness, to lift up God's holiness, to praise God's overwhelming generosity, to remember that God will crush his enemies, to recount all of God's attributes and holiness, to break our silence concerning God's glory, to transfer ourselves to God, glory from ourselves to God, rather, to give back to God the song he gave us first, to pray for God's comfort in the darkness, to extol the future reign of God's Messiah on the earth, to acknowledge God's right to rule the earth, to respond to God's forgiveness of sin, to express determination to follow God, to convey my soul's satisfaction in God, to ascribe glory and honor to God, to call to the kingdoms of earth, to submit to God, 
to declare that God's righteous anger is unstoppable, to remember God's kindness during pain and depression, to cry out to God for justice on the earth, to unite our body and spirit in praise to God, to weep in the midst of our great agony, to proclaim God's love to your children and grandchildren, to celebrate God's providence in the world, to be a blessing unto God, to tell stories of God's valiant deeds, to sing the scriptures back to God, to pray for God's help amidst the wicked, to remind us that God preserves the saved, to beg for God's blessing, to celebrate with God when your weeping is done, to give strength to wait on God, to remind God of his promises, to enjoy unity among God's people, to proclaim the fame of God. And that's just the Old Testament. And now you turn to the New Testament and the reasons to sing become very Christological, very Christ-centered. That we sing to remember God's sacrifice of Christ. We sing to attend suffering for Christ's gospel, to thank God that Christ saves heathens like us, to rehearse the great truths of Christ, to encourage one another in Christ's church, to proclaim Christ to fellow believers, to accompany being imprisoned for Christ's gospel, to express being cheerful in Christ, to shout out the worth of Christ, to proclaim that Christ is judge, to remember the death of Christ, to boast that Christ will save people from every tribe and language and people and nation, to declare that Christ is alive, to announce that Christ is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and to sing to Christ as our King of kings and Lord of lords, as Revelation 15 proclaims in song, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And speaking of Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'd like to close with some words for our governor. Governor Gavin Newsom. I've preached to our church and I've preached to many outside of our church who listen. That they are to respect you. And they are to honor you. And they are to submit to you as their duly elected governor. My record on that is absolutely clear. As a matter of fact, defending the office of governor has brought me some heat and criticism for defending your right to govern. But I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I have an obligation and a right and a duty to give you some reminders from the word of God. Romans 13 verse 1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Governor Newsom, I want you to remember the words of Jesus Christ to Pontius Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 11. You would have no authority unless it was given you from above. I want you to remember the words of Isaiah chapter 14 to the kings of the earth who have rejected God as the one true king. Isaiah 14 says that their pomp and splendor is brought down. They lay in a bed of maggots and cover themselves with covers of worms. They're cut to the ground and they become nothing more than shades and shadow thrown off the thrones that they occupied on earth. The one that made their people tremble in fear are thrown away now like a dead branch trampled underfoot like a dead and decaying body. And I would remind you that as a governor appointed by God, 
you made a decision to silence the singing voices of God's people in California. And you could have made a different choice. And you still can make that choice. You could make the choice to do like King Darius, the king of the Babylonian province in the Persian Empire, made the choice to issue a proclamation in which he said in Daniel chapter 6, that the God of Daniel is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. You could make a choice not to restrict singing, but to call for singing and to call for prayer, to call for all of God's people to sing and to pray. To glorify God and to beg for his help. And then, Governor, I promise you what you would see is the hand of God moving in kindness and graciousness as a leader appointed by God calls upon God to help his people. And they do so by singing to the Lord. Governor, instead of restricting singing, call for a day of singing. Call for a week of singing. Call for unceasing singing. Call for a day of praising God and asking for His mercy and His help. I believe wholeheartedly in the command of 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, which commands us as Christians to lift up supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all who are in a high position because this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And so I say from the bottom of my heart, And with all sincerity, I am truly thankful that we have you as a governor because you have been appointed by God. You are God's choice. And I do pray for you. And I have asked our church to pray for you as well. I pray for your wisdom. And I pray for your care of of your people. But in the spirit of the command to give intercession for you, which means to ask God for things on your behalf, I'm also asking God to be merciful to you because, Governor Newsom, you desperately need God's mercy. You claim to be a Catholic, which means that at least you claim to believe in God. But the Bible says even the demons believe in God and they shudder in fear. The Catholic religion rejects salvation from sin by grace alone, through faith alone. And so I am praying that you repent You turn away from your pride and from your arrogance, which characterizes anyone who believes that they may work for their salvation. And I'm praying that before the end of your life, you bend your knee, you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and with total humility, that you come clean concerning your own sin and your own hypocrisy. You come clean concerning the hypocrisy of encouraging protests that are public, completely defying the orders of social distancing and wearing masks, while at the same time restricting the singing of God's praises by law-abiding citizens. I am praying that you repent of your hypocrisy of keeping your own money-making winery open even as you close down all the others. You are headed for an eternal destruction which is a billion times worse than anything you've inflicted on us. But if you will bow in humble repentance and submission to the true king Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit will indwell you, 
You'll be a new creation in Christ. And can I tell you something very interesting, Governor Newsom? I want to assure you that there will be something brand new in you that you deeply, deeply yearn to do. You will yearn to gather with God's people, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's what the book of Ephesians says you will long to do. And then you would go to heaven at the end of your life. And what a tremendous testimony, what a tremendous demonstration of the grace and the mercy of God that the very man who once decreed singing to be illegal in his state now joins all Christians to sing before God. Thanks to you, Governor Newsom, we may not be singing right now, but we will be singing for all eternity, and it's my prayer that you'll join us. It's my prayer that if you would place your faith in Christ it would be our pleasure, it would be our delight to sing alongside you to the true governor. The one that Isaiah chapter 9 says upon his shoulders is all the government, Jesus Christ. Well now in the meantime for all of us who have trusted Christ as, as Savior, I want you to be encouraged by reassurance from the Apostle Peter. Such great words. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I think we're there. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, to him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said together, Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture. And we grieve that our voices are restrained. And yet we will wait upon the Lord. And we know that singing will win. We know that faith in Christ will win. And we do, Lord, pray for our governing officials. We're commanded to do so. We're commanded to, to be cognizant of them. They carry a great burden. But the burden is to do what is right. And we fear, Lord, for them when they reject your precepts, when they reject your counsel. And so we would ask for your mercy. We ask for your help and mercy on our governor. That he would seek to honor God instead of men. And we pray, Lord, for a day very soon, might be next week, when we have the wisdom to know when it's time to simply sing at all costs. We praise you, we love you, and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, who is the King, who is our all in all. We pray in his name. Amen.